You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Converts in the face of persecution will run. Disciples of Jesus, when faced with persecution, stand with courage. He said that as the persecution increases, that we find out who the real church really is. Turn to Acts 4. Acts 4. We, we have here at Acts 4 the first pushback upon the church and the gospel and what's happening. Uh, up until this point, we've, we've been able to see the move of God in a powerful way. And this is not to say that individually, people in the streets that were following Jesus and then bringing Jesus up to their neighbors and the people inside Jerusalem, it's not to say that they didn't face pushback persecution. Not saying that. But I'm saying that the first recorded incident of a collective pushback upon what God is doing happens in chapter 4. And quite frankly, we, sh- we should be expecting this. We should be expecting this not only in this New Testament church, but also in our own individual lives. You see, we've been praying for spiritual awakening. Uh, for many of you, uh, you started on this 40 days of prayer. Some of you are going to start a little later. Some of you have already uh, begun fasting. Some of you wrapped that up on Friday, Saturday. Uh, and I, I know that you've already experienced uh, some spiritual warfare. Maybe you didn't recognize it for what it was, but let me explain. When you made the commitment to pray, and when you made the commitment to, to separate yourself from social media or, or a meal or something, you immediately begin to have all kinds of not only conflicts with your schedule, you had... You had issues that were coming up in your life that if it had came up the day before you made the commitment or began the commitment, you wouldn't have done it because that thing that came up in your life really made the commitment even more difficult. It magnified it. You have, uh, for those of you who are fasting from a meal or specific food, everywhere you've gone in the last 10 days, that food has come up. Every time that you try to set time apart, to work through the devotional and spend time alone with God, your phone rings. Or, or some family emergency happens that just absolutely demands your time. I want you to understand that, that that's not circumstances. It's not happenstance. That, that the forces of darkness absolutely do not want you to abide in Christ. And you've got to understand that. Because it's abiding in Christ when the vine and the branch are connected, as John 15 tells us as Jesus was speaking. You know, you know what the result of that is? You know what the result is of a person who abides with Christ and, and, and Jesus illustrated as a branch connected to the vine? You know what happens? Well, in that moment, what happens is we abide in Christ. Fruit is the result. Fruit. You know what Satan doesn't want to have happen in this church? You know what he, he absolutely does not want to have happen in your life individually or corporately as a church? He does not want fruit in your life. What kind of fruit? Well. You personally, the fruits of the Spirit. Peace, love, joy, long-suffering, patience. But even more, 
of a threat to Satan's kingdom and the army of darkness is when you begin to bring Jesus up and people's hearts begin to be awakened to the reality that there's another life, a better life, a different life that you found that they haven't found yet. Every single time God begins to bring spiritual awakening and spiritual renewal into the life of the disciple, there will absolutely be a pushback from darkness because there is power inherent in the person who abides with Christ day in and day out consistently. Amen? So as you've been going through this spiritual journey over the last few days, you've still got many days ahead of you, you've had all kinds of conflicts. And if you look at it from one perspective, it's just life. But I would offer to you that if you look at it from a different perspective, you will find that it's none other than spiritual warfare. It's none other than the forces of darkness trying to distract and to try to get you off in a different direction than abiding in Christ. Did you learn some things about Iran? You can, you can watch this video. It's on YouTube. It's called Sheeps Among, Sheep Among Wolves. It's about a two-hour movie. It's all free. You can watch it. You can watch every bit of that and see what is happening inside the, the people of Iran. We don't hear about this in the news. You won't hear about it in the news. Because the last thing that our culture is going to tell us is that Christ is moving in some country that we would rather think of as a bunch of terrorists who are out to kill us. Certainly that element is there, but certainly Christ is at work. Lives are being changed. And it's not just there. Listen to this quote. For every gospel action, there is an opposite and devious demonic reaction. For every step you take towards Christ and abiding with Him, there is these distractions, these things that happen in our life, these things that, that seem to want to pull us back to the same old habits where we just go on day through day through day through life where the only time we pray is around a meal and the only time the name of the Lord comes up is when we're angry. You see, there's more at stake here. There's more going on here. And this church, this early church, is going to experience it collectively. Up until this point, we've seen 3,000 people come to faith after Peter preaches. In chapter 4, you're going to see that another 5,000 people come to faith in Christ. And what we have in these early chapters in the book of Acts is we have movement. God is at work, not just in Peter and John. Even though Peter and John seems to be the central focus up until this point, I want you to understand that what's happening in the streets is that Jesus is coming up over and over and over again. These 3,000 that came to faith in Christ have now begun to tell other people about Christ, and they've begun to disciple other people. These 5,000 that are going to come to faith in Christ, they're going to be taught the apostles' doctrine. They're going to be taught how to pray. They're going to be sharing meals together. The same thing that we saw in Acts 2, 41 through 47 is going to be played out all over again. And what we have here is a movement, of movement energized by the Holy Spirit through individuals who have incredible courage. That's what I want to look at this, this morning is, is the courage that these men and women have in the face of some serious pushback. And for every move of God, there's an equal and devious, demonic pushback from the forces of darkness to make sure we stay distracted to make sure the name of Jesus doesn't come up, to make sure that we don't walk into the other cubicle or across the street and bring the name of Jesus up to anybody we come in contact with. In chapter 4, we're going to have the first 
obvious and tangible persecution of the New Testament church. And what's interesting is, is that every chapter in the book of Acts from here forward, every single chapter from chapter 4 forward to the end of the book has persecution in the pages, in the chapters, except for three chapters. So this becomes, this becomes the norm. This becomes the reality of people who are standing for Christ. This becomes their life. And what I want you to see in the weeks ahead is the courage that these people have. And I don't know about you, but I, I want to have that same kind of courage. The disciples that we're reading about, they're growing deeper in the faith. And, and they're reaching out wider and wider and wider. It's not just Peter and John and James and Andrew and Theophilus and Matthias. It's not just those guys. What's happening here is bigger than them, and they know it. And even more importantly is even if Peter and James and John and Theophilus and Matthias and all the others, even if they get put in jail, even if they lose their life, God is already at work in the street and the gospel's being proclaimed. I don't want to have the courage like these guys have because, quite honestly, I don't always have it. And we talked last week about Jesus had asked Peter and his brother Andrew and all the disciples to follow and to fish. And if we're not, if we're not following Jesus, there's no way we can fish for mankind because we've got to know who we're following before we can proclaim a gospel. We have to be changed by that gospel before we can proclaim it. So, so we've got to be following Jesus if we're going to fish for people. But if we're not fishing for people, we're not following Jesus. So we can talk about all the rituals. We can talk about all the membership. We can talk about all these things, but it really comes down to following Jesus and fishing for people. And if we're not fishing, we're not following. It doesn't matter how you dress it up. And what I think needs to happen in the New Testament church is we need to have a, re, a revisit to courage. We need to have something inside of us that gives us the courage to start talking about the greatest love of our life. Because you're going to see a contrast between the modern church, what's happening in Iran, and what's happening here. There's, there's, there's something happening in the American church. And what's happening is, is we're far too quiet. And I think courage to follow and to fish is what we need, even in hostile territory. Take a look at verse 1, Acts 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John were still in Solomon's portico, right outside the temple proper, where they had this man who was lame for 40 years of his life has now found... Healing. He's now been completely and utterly healed. He's, he's jumping and running all over the place. He's praising God. Not only has he found physical renewal, he's found spiritual renewal. renewal. And they have gathered underneath this porch and thousands of people from all across the court of Gentiles, maybe inside the actual temple proper, have come over to see what's going, going on because this man whom they walk by every single day has now been healed. And Peter and John both are speaking to the people. The priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And they were greatly annoyed. <laughs> I love that. So here, here is the, the key leaders of the day. The, these men had power. They had influence. It, it's this exact same group of people who condemned Jesus, an innocent man, to die on a cross. The same exact ones. 
So while Peter has preached to the crowds that they were all responsible for Jesus being condemned to death, if you really want to get down to the key players and all that went down with Jesus, right here they are. And these people have come out of the temple property and they are angry and they are upset. And the Bible says that they are annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, a group of scholars, and this particular sect of scholars did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in demons and angels. They didn't believe in, in resurrection from the dead. So they were especially annoyed that this Jesus that they put to death is still coming up. Now I know that these leaders have been hearing that all through the streets of Jerusalem, people were saying the name of Jesus. I know they already knew that. But these people are inside the temple, and they're over there proclaiming the name of Jesus, and something must be done. And here's the first point I want you to see, is if you want to have courage, you're going to have to have a commitment to proclaim the gospel, even if people are offended, even if people get annoyed. And trust me when I tell you, if you bring Jesus up enough, somebody's going to get annoyed with you. It is what it is. And folks, I think it's time as followers of Christ, we just embrace the reality of what Jesus told his disciples and he told them, I'm going to send you out as sheep among wolves. <laughs> Do you need any better illustration than that? What happens when a whole bunch of wolves get around a few sheep? Well, it's a bloodbath, right? So Jesus looks at his disciples and says, the ministry that you're going to have is going to be like sheep among wolves. Here's Peter and John. They've been proclaiming, look at this, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The message has not changed. And even when faced with some serious pushback, because these guys, these Sadducees, and, and these priestly leaders, they have the power to do to Peter and John the same thing they did to Jesus. Matter of fact, I would imagine that Peter and John are probably accepting of this thing not going well when they show up. Because what does Peter and John know about the Sadducees, the high priest, the captain of the temple? What do they know? Well, they know that they are the ones that got Jesus to the place of being convicted by Pilate put on a cross. So I'd imagine that John and Peter understand the brevity of the moment. Verse 3, And they arrested them and put them in the custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Even though Peter and John is going to be thrown into prison, even if they take Peter and John and take their heads off, it's not going to change a single thing. The gospel is already going forward. Disciples in the street are already telling other people about Jesus, and 5,000 people have come to faith in Christ, and there is not a thing the Sadducees can do about it. Not a thing. It's amazing. The gospel was offensive to these leaders. You ever, you ever stop to wonder why it's offensive? Not, not just to them, but but to our culture at large. Because the gospel that we proclaim is a gospel that says not only is there life after death, but there is life in torment after death if you are not where you need to be with Jesus Christ. If you've not put your faith in Him, that judgment is sure to come. I can just tell you now, that's not a very a message that's welcomed most of the time. Now, we don't live in Vermont. We don't live in... Places up north where there really is no gospel presence. I don't know if you're aware of this, but 
There are states up in the north that have almost no churches that are preaching the gospel. So therefore, when the gospel comes up, it is a really foreign idea, and, and, and people get offended really easily. Here, you're living in the southern Bible belt. You can bring Jesus up. Most of the time, you're gonna, people are going to have a conversation with you. Most of the time, people are open, but there's going to be times where people are going to get really annoyed with you, and they're not going to like what you have to say. And can I just say to you, that's what you signed up for when you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus never told you, and nor did he ever promise, that following him was going to be a bed of roses. So church, can we just embrace the fact that the gospel itself, the gospel that saved us, is not going to be embraced by every single person we come in contact with. They're going to get upset. And guess what? It's okay. It's okay. We don't look to be offensive. Our goal is not to offend people. Our, our goal is to love and to be compassionate and to meet needs and, and to serve Jesus no matter where we go. But when Jesus comes up, People can get annoyed by it. Disciples, you're going to have to be okay with that. There's something in us that, that drives us to want to be liked by everyone, right? That we, we, we have something in us that, that, that wants everyone to like and accept us. And in that moment, absolutely love people and show compassion, just like I said. But, but when it comes down to the gospel, we have to proclaim it and leave the results up to God. If you're offended by it, then you're offended by it. If you're not and you accept it, then praise God. But I'm not responsible for how you respond to it. I'm responsible to Lord Himself to make sure Jesus comes up. And it's going to offend. So notice what happens. So not only do we have to have a commitment to proclaim the gospel, even when it offends. Verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all those who were of the high priestly family. You should see, you should recognize some of those names there if you're familiar with what happened to Jesus. The first name that comes up is Annas. Annas is, he is a powerful, powerful individual. Powerful with the Romans, powerful with the high priest and the Jewish culture. This man was the guy. He, he was not the high priest. He had not been the high priest for a few years at this point. But make no mistake about it, he's in the background and he's running the show. Okay, Everybody wants to know what Annas thinks about anything that's happening in the priesthood. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the high priest. And, and so you have a, a family connection here in this priesthood. We find out that Annas has other sons that have served in the priesthood. We find out that Annas' family has connections all through the priesthood, and not only through the priesthood, but they have strong connections with the Roman authorities. You could say that the priesthood and the Roman authorities were working together to keep the peace. This man, John, I think, is a man by the name of Jonathan. He's the son of Annas. In other words, you have Judaism's heavy hitters here. You've got the intellectual elite here. You've got, you've got the best that Judaism has of the day in front of Peter and John. You have the Sanhedrin, the same ones who convicted Jesus and convinced Pilate to put him to death. The second point I want you to see is we've got to have a commitment not only to share the gospel, even if it offends. But we've got to have a commitment to stand against the angry elite. You know who the angry elite are? They're all over Facebook. You've already had a few run-ins with them, haven't you? 
You've posted something about Jesus. You've posted something about God answering a prayer. And all of a sudden, you get some replies in your post. And they're angry. They're mad. They're upset with you. That you, how dare you get on Facebook and use that as a tool to talk about Jesus? Well, if you're talking about politics and you're talking about all this other garbage, then I'm going to talk about Jesus. But you get those messages in your, in your message, um, in your private message account there. You see that name and you go, Oh, Lord. Oh, no, not that person again. They're angry, and they have this elite status. Let me, let me explain that. When they consider what you have to say about Jesus, here's what they think about you, and here's what they say about you. Well, they're nice, but they're, they're really ignorant people. You know, they're just, they're just a bunch of farmers. They're just a bunch of, they're just a bunch of folks who don't know any better. They're, they're just a bunch of business owners who, who are ignorant, and, and they use Christianity as a crutch to get them through life. And, and you see, I'm smarter than that. I've had education, and I've got all these things, and I've got experiences. I don't need Jesus as a crutch because at the end of the day, I'm not even sure he's real. So I'm going to let them just continue in their foolishness, let them gather together on Sunday mornings, but at the end of the day, they're just ignorant people. Did you know that? Did you know that's being said about you from the angry elite? Guess who's standing in front of John and Peter? The angry elite. And they're looking at Peter and John, and they're thinking, these guys have nothing to say to us. They have nothing to teach us. They have nothing to say to us. And really, the Sanhedrin hopes that the fear that they're going to thrust into them by putting them in jail overnight is going to be enough for them just to cool off. Have you ever felt outmatched? Have you, ever, have you ever had that excuse run through your head that the Lord's prompting you to bring Christ up in your walk with Christ, but the person you're going to bring them up to is angry and elite, and they've got the PhDs, and they've got all the education, and there's that, there's that voice inside your head that says, ah, don't bring Jesus up right here, because if you do, he's going to make fun of you, or she's going to call you ignorant or they're going to laugh at you. Don't, don't do that. You see, there's that desire inside of us to want to fit in, that desire to, to fit into the crowd, and, and we don't want to upset anybody. So if we bring Jesus up to this elitist, they're going to look at us and go, yeah, you know, I've been meaning to talk to you about that foolishness that you, that you keep spouting off on about social media, about Jesus and all of this. And it's that fear that creeps in, that we begin to think that the world the world and all of their education and all of their anger and all of their elite status and all of their titles should be speaking and we should be quiet. Can I say to you that the moment you came to faith in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a farmer, a CEO, it doesn't matter what your life pursuits are, it doesn't matter how many degrees you have, but at the moment you came to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelt you, you've got everything you need to put that elitist to shame with truth. It's not our goal to shame them. It's our goal to share the truth. And you've got all that you need to pronounce the gospel of Jesus Christ in that moment. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to go seek a PhD. All you got to do is be yielded and obedient to the Holy Spirit who lives in you. God, who created the world, lives inside of you. What more do you need? Nothing. Bring Jesus up. Here's Peter and John. And Peter and John are standing before this angry elite, and this angry elite thinks that these two guys have nothing to say. 
but how wrong would they be? Look at this verse, verse 7, latter part. He says, by what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, the Sanhedrin has a question. They want to know, by what name did this guy who's been lame for 40 years that we walked by in the temple every day, they walked by that guy every day. By what power and by what name did you heal this man? They already know. But what they're wanting to do is Peter and John to incriminate themselves so they can take the next steps, strike fear into them. They already know what's going on here. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stop right there. We've got to have a commitment to speak the gospel even when it offends. We've got to have the commitment and the courage to bring Jesus up, even against those who are angry and, and feel like they're so much smarter than us, we still have to bring Jesus up. And now here's how you do it. Here's what has to happen. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I've got to explain this, or we're going we're gonna to get the wrong idea here. The idea that we see in the New Testament over and over again of, the, of, of a person being filled with the Holy Spirit, that is not saying that, that Peter had like 50% of the Holy Spirit, and then in this moment he gets 100% of the Holy Spirit, and now he's able to speak. That is not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about like Peter's high full of the Holy Spirit or a third full, and then all of a sudden he gets filled up and the Holy Spirit's presence is now with him. That is not it. At the moment you put faith in Jesus, you get 100% of the Holy Spirit at that moment. You don't need to ask him for any more Holy Spirit. You don't need to ask, Holy Spirit, be with me in this moment. He's already there. He lives inside of you, and that does not change. So it's not about, I need a little more. You've got him all. Here's the issue. The issue of being filled with the Holy Spirit, the issue here is, are you obedient to the Holy Spirit that is living in you? You see, what's going to happen here is Peter's going to say, I'm going to completely surrender my mouth, my actions, everything that's going to happen in this room. Holy Spirit, you take control. That's what's happening. Peter is going to be completely yielded to the Holy Spirit. You know what it means to be yielded? When you pull out of this parking lot and you try to merge into traffic, you're yielding. You're letting the other cars go by. Holy Spirit is working in Peter, and Peter says, God, it's yours. The words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, this angry elite, Peter in himself, as, a, as just a fisherman, a common fisherman, Peter himself has nothing to bring to the table himself. But oh my goodness, a man or a woman who's completely yielded to the Holy Spirit you better watch out. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. This boldness, clarity. Not only that, but Peter begins to quote Scripture. Look at this. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to the rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, this, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Simple, not angry, not confrontational, just saying, here's the facts, folks. And the reality is, this man has been healed by that same Jesus you hung on the cross. He resurrected. We were with him. His ministry continues. Now you find out what's really annoying the Sanhedrin. They put the man to death. They thought that was going to be the end of it. They thought that when they hung Jesus on this cross, that that was going to be the end of the movement. But anything but that has happened. 
Some eight to 10,000 people are walking the streets of Jerusalem at that particular moment. At the time, Peter and John are standing before this Sanhedrin out in the streets. Some 10,000 people strong are sharing the gospel over and over and over again. It makes no difference what happens to Peter and John. It makes no difference what the Sanhedrin does. The movement has already begun. The Holy Spirit is already at work, and there's not a Sanhedrin, there's not a politician, there's not a single person that can stop it. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, this Jesus, verse 11 is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Peter quotes Psalm 118.22. Psalm 118.22 is going to be a verse that comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament church. That this, this stone that was rejected, He's going to be the chief cornerstone, which means there's going to be a, a household built, and it's going to be built around Jesus. It's not going to be built around the priesthood. It's not going to be built around the temple. It's not going to be built around Sanhedrin's or Annas or Caiaphas. It's going to be built around Jesus Christ, and that, folks, is why they're annoyed. Because all these years, they've been in power. They've been in control. They've called the shots. They've been elevated to a high status, but now there's a threat. Jesus was a threat. They put him to death. Now Peter and John and the disciples are constantly talking about Jesus. Something's got to be done about them. Listen, it's way out of their control, way beyond anything they can do. You see, it's these same people, Caiaphas, Annas, the priesthood, when Jesus was placed in the tomb, they go and talk with Pilate in Matthew 27. And they, they say to Pilate, listen, these disciples have been talking and talking and talking about a resurrection. So Pilate, we need, we need to post an extra guard at the tomb. And we need to make sure that that thing is protected because the last thing we want to have happen is the disciples go in there, steal the body, and then come out and tell everyone he's been resurrected, and this whole thing start all over again. And Pilate says, yeah, yeah, you're right. We probably need to do that. So they post a guard. After Jesus' resurrection, the body's gone. And, and, and nobody has an explanation for it. So, so these religious leaders go back to the guards, the actual guards that were standing duty when Jesus walked out alive. They go back to those guards, and they pay those guards off with money and tell those guards, listen, when anybody asks about where the body is, tell them that the disciples stole the body. They did everything they could to stop this. They did everything they could to cover all their bases, and yet here we have Peter and John preaching inside the temple, thousands naming the name of Jesus Christ. It is beyond their control, and the Holy Spirit is driving this. So we've got to have a commitment to speak what the Holy Spirit says in that moment. You're afraid of the angry elite. You're afraid of bringing Jesus up because the excuse is, we, what are we going to say? We don't know what to say. What are we going to say in that moment? How are we going to have the words? How am I going to remember the verses? And I'm telling you from experience, there's been times that I've been in that moment and the things that come out of my mouth are like, what? Where did that come from? I didn't prepare in advance. You have one of those God moments, right? One of those God moments where you, you didn't have time to sit down and write all your notes out. You didn't have time to 
to have your Bible all marked perfectly and all of a sudden God presents somebody to you and you take the next step and you're obedient. The next thing you know, things are coming out of your mouth that you had no idea you knew, yet the Holy Spirit is working in you in that moment and it blows your mind. We used to call that the unction. We call it the anointing. You can call it whatever you want to. What I'm saying is you've got to be obedient to it. Go back to Luke 12. You need to see this. Luke 12. Here in Luke 12, Jesus is warning the disciples. And he, he knew they were going to be afraid. He knew they were going to struggle with fear. He knew we were going to struggle with that. But here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus says something that is fulfilled in Luke 4. Now, it was fulfilled in the days when Jesus was walking with his disciples, but it is clearly, clearly fulfilled in Acts 4. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 11. He says, And when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities. Notice that. Jesus didn't say, If they bring you. If someday you might find yourself on the wrong side of the community when you proclaim the God, if that might happen someday, then here's what you need to do. Jesus says, it's going to happen. If you proclaim the gospel, it's going to offend, and it's going to be a problem, and it's going to bring some pain into your life. He says, and when that happens, do not be anxious. Well, now wait a minute. Every time the Holy Spirit prompts you to bring Jesus up, you feel that anxiety, do you not? And we, and we start leaning to those excuses that we've accepted as reality. They're smarter than me. I, I can't talk with them about Jesus. I don't know what to say. I don't know the Bible verses. You know, it's always struck me as odd that, that people who've sat in churches for 20 years, been following Christ for 20 years, have heard countless sermons, have heard countless invitations, have heard countless numbers of times the gospel proclaimed, we have the idea that we can say to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we don't know what to say. The newborn believer has something to say. The person who just came to faith in Christ has something to say. Jesus says, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. And here it is, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Amen. But you're going to have to trust Him with that. You're going to have to trust Him long enough to allow Him to work in the moment and, and trust Him that in that moment you're going to have what you need to say. Peter and John, Peter and John are just a couple of nobodies. The, the Sanhedrin, after this, after they asked Peter and John to leave and they kind of convene, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, who are these guys? They're uneducated. That doesn't mean they were illiterate. It just means that they're not trained to speak the way they're speaking. They're not trained to stand in front of the Sanhedrin with boldness. They shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be able to do this. They're just uneducated nobodies. Well, I'll take the person sold out, obedient to the Holy Spirit, before your three PhDs any day of the week. Not only a commitment to speak what the Holy Spirit says in the moment, but a commitment not to compromise the message. Look at verse 12. 
Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Concise, clear as it can possibly be. In this moment, they recognize that this Sanhedrin has the power to convict them to death. They've already done it with Jesus. The, the, Peter and John know that they could be thrown away in a prison and just disappear. P, Peter and John know that, that as far as power in that moment, worldly, earthly power, the ones they're standing in front of, they've got it all. But Peter and John recognizes something also, that the power that lives in them is greater than the power that is in the world, and the movement has already begun, and nothing's going to stop it. So we might as well just say the truth and put the truth out there as it is. And for the priesthood, you guys have got to understand, there is salvation in no other name. There's no salvation in Annas, Caiaphas, Jonathan, Alexander, the priesthood, or the temple. Salvation is only in Jesus alone. Boy, that's offensive. But... But you got to know, Pastor, that there's a lot of really good people out there in other religions, and they are just as committed to their beliefs. And, and, and you're, you're not about to tell me that those people who are good people, who are committed to their religion, who are committed to their, to their leader and their religion, you're not about to tell me and be so close-minded that Jesus Christ is the only way a person can be saved. And I will look at him and I go, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because we can't compromise the message. We've received a message and we have no right to tamper with it. When faced with pushback, if we're not careful, we can compromise. Satan loves a false, compromised, weak gospel. He loves it. He loves a gospel that only tells part of the story. That God is love and, and God, wants, God wants you to have all the best. And, and if, you'll just, if you'll just pray a little prayer, if you'll just go to church, or if you'll just throw some money in the offering plate, if you'll just become a member, if you'll just get baptized, then, then that's all you need to do and that's all you'll ever need to do and, and you're fine. You see, Satan loves a false gospel. He loves a watered-down gospel because it misleads hordes of people who never come out of darkness in the light, who remain in His kingdom under His power. And folks, the, the reality is, is that the gospel's being compromised. It's being compromised in order to build big followings of people. That the gospel's being compromised across our country for the sake of getting along with people. That the gospel's been turned into some kind of social justice thing where the gospel is handing out food or the, the gospel is, is helping people get an education or the gospel is, is helping people have fine clothing and shelter and education. All those things are important, but none of that is the gospel. None of that. It's a tool by which we can love people by helping them have food, clothing, shelter. We can share the love of Christ, but in that moment, when those opportunities arise, we must bring up the gospel, and the gospel says that you must put faith in Jesus Christ or else you will face the wrath of an almighty God. I have no right to compromise it. And finally, there's a commitment to obey God rather than people. Verse 13, And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, what was it that, that got the attention of the Sanhedrin? Yes, it was the 40-year-old man who's been healed. 
Yes, it was the fact that that Jesus is still coming up and there's thousands in the streets. That's all got their attention, but here's what really got their attention. The boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, I don't know exactly what they meant by that statement. Does it mean that, that they have been with Jesus those three and a half years before Jesus was hung on a cross? Yes. But, but did they know that, that these men had been with Jesus for 40 days after the resurrection? You see, it was after that resurrection and that time that Jesus spent with him for those 40 days, that changed everything for Peter, James, John, and the rest. I mean, when you sit down with a man and have a meal with him who walked out of a grave alive after three days, who still has the marks in his body of the beatings that he took, that's, that's, that's a game changer. They had been with Jesus, and every time you're with Jesus, when you're abiding with Jesus, listen, it makes a difference in your life. These 40 days of prayer that you're doing, the whole point of that is spiritual renewal so that people will know that you are abiding in Christ. It's life-changing. Can't contain that. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? This is the first of many times people are going to get together and try to figure out what to do with these Christians. This is the first time. They're having a meeting behind closed doors, and they're like, well, Guys, what do we do? And in that room, it is stunned silence. Listen, the angry elite are stunned in the silence. They don't even know what to do. They don't know what to say. They, they realize how big this thing has gotten, and now we've got uneducated fishermen who are schooling us in the Word. So they called them together and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They bring Peter and John back in, and, and they look at Peter and John and said, Now we're going to tell you, we're going to be clear with you. You better shut up about Jesus. You better give up this whole Jesus thing. You know what we're capable of. You know what our power is. And they threaten them, and they, they, they threaten them over and over again. And, and I would imagine just Peter and John's just standing there listening to the whole thing. Let them get it off their chest. And after they had threatened them with everything they could threaten them with, notice what is said. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, verse 19. But Peter and John, both of them answered. Both of them spoke. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. In other words, Peter and John look at him and say, look, you guys can sit up in here and you can argue about this all you want to. The Sadducees, you can argue about whether a resurrection is going to happen. The Pharisees can argue. Y'all can argue all you want to because that's what you guys do. You can sit around and you can have your meetings. You can have all your committee meetings. You can raise your hand and vote. You can do whatever you want to do. You sit up in here. You judge. But let me tell you what we're going to do. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. <laughs> Does it get any clearer than that? You guys argue all you want to, but as soon as we walk out of this room, yeah, Jesus is coming up. As soon as I go down to the streets of Jerusalem, yeah, Jesus is going to come up. As soon as we go back and meet at Solomon's portico, we're going to proclaim the name of Jesus. Yeah, the resurrection is going to come up. That one you hung on the cross, that one that resurrected, we can't help but talk about it. Which begs the question. 
Why is the modern Western American church so ashamed of him? Look, folks, it doesn't matter what statistics you look at. They all point to the same thing. That for many, many, many years, the American church has grown more and more and more silent about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read this uh, in one of my books, and it was a, a great quote, and I don't think I've got it in here exactly the way it was worded, but it was one of the leaders of the Chinese church, the underground church in China, and he said, you know, we appreciate the fact that the American church is praying in our per- praying for us in our persecution, that the Chinese church has been praying for the American church in our prosperity. You see, the, the Chinese church sees that the prosperity of the American church is probably what has caused us to not be faithful to Christ. And while we call that Christ is our King and as is our Lord, there's another idol that has crept in, and it's the idol of prosperity in the Chinese church who faces persecution every day of their existence. The Iranian church that is focused on or is experiencing persecution every day of their life, they're looking at the American church and wondering the same thing we should be wondering. Why are we so quiet about it? I am not going to be a prophet of doom. I'm not a prophet, don't claim to be. But I can look at our culture and I can tell you that my kids may be the first kids, the first generation that has to face actual, real persecution inside their own country. I don't want to be a downer. I don't want to be the guy who said X is going to happen. I'm not that kind of guy. You know that. But I also see where the trends are heading. I see the the conflict that is brewing. And my kids could be the first generation that could be brought into a closed-door meeting somewhere and threatened for their stand for Christ. We may see it in our lifetime, church. And if we're not standing while it's easy, if we're not standing while we have a constitution that backs us up, if we're not standing while we have the freedom to bring Jesus up now, how in the world are we going to be standing when the chips are put on the table and the constitution is eroded away? Lost person, i got a question for you. I want you to consider. One thing that is eerily missing in this conversation between these religious leaders and Peter and John is that they didn't push back on Peter and John. They didn't argue with them. They didn't debate with them. If they had paid off those guards to lie that the disciples had stolen the body, why didn't they bring that up in this meeting? Why didn't they yell at Peter and John that they're lying, that that Jesus didn't resurrect, that, that Jesus is in fact still dead and you guys have stolen the body? Or, or why, why were they not looking for a body? If they had a body, why didn't they bring it out? Right now would be a great time to bring the body of Jesus out and say, here, they're all lying to you. There is no resurrection. The Sadducees would have loved to have done that. But isn't it interesting that the Sanhedrin, the angry elite, didn't argue, didn't debate, It's almost as though they understand that something happened on that third day. 
It's almost as though they realize that there's something happening here and all they're trying to do is manage it, stop it, and control it, which they're going to fail miserably. And so, lost person, let me ask you something. If that Sanhedrin, the one who hated Jesus with a passion and tried to pay off the guards to start some false story, if they begin to realize that something did in fact happen, if Jesus walked out of a tomb alive, then did you... You must come to the reality of the truth that Jesus resurrected and He died on that cross and all that He said is true and He was exalted back to the Father. That demands something of you. It demands faith. It demands repentance. It demands laying down my idols and my false gods and worshiping and bowing and surrendering to the only God that matters, the Godhead Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the, God the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, your kindness and your grace and your patience with us is incredible. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But he didn't stay dead. Resurrected. These men saw it, walked with him, and forever changed their life. In all of this being true, and has changed many in this room. It's time that we have courage in a culture that desperately needs to hear about Jesus, desperate to know where there's truth, desperate to know if there's any hope or life to be found in the world and all of the chaos. So, Father, I, I pray that we would stop making excuses and in the moment be filled with the Holy Spirit, completely under His control, and speak. Speak the words of truth, the words of life not concerned about how it will be received, not concerned about what other people think, not concerned that, that maybe we're not smart enough or intelligent enough or have enough degrees, not worried about any of that, but simply in the moment, in complete obedience to the Holy Spirit, speaking the words of life. And then, Father, seeing your power on display, no longer afraid, filled with courage, Father, for the lost person, they can't get around this empty tomb. They simply can't. It's a glaring testimony of your love for us and that there is life after death, and that everything that Jesus said about life after death is absolutely true. Father, in this moment, draw people to the cross. And we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 